We are in a study of the Gospel of John. We've made our way to John 5. You just heard John 5, 1 through 18 read. And uh, sometimes, you know, as a pastor, you have this overwhelming sense of the responsibility that it is uh, to stand before God's people and to teach His Word. Today, for me, is one of those days because... Ultimately, what I see in our story is this man who's been an invalid for 38 years, and Jesus asked him a question, and the question is, do you wish to be healed? And it's interesting, because sometimes we really don't wish to be healed, because we can't see who it is that is asking us. Jesus today may be asking one of you, Do you wish to be healed? And so I want to pause right here and I want to pray. And I want to ask God to supernaturally be with us during this time. Let's pray. Father, I'm never more aware than when I stand before your people. How precious is your word. How valuable is this time that we come as your people to worship in your presence and to be before you. Father, I pray that your word would run deep and wide into the hearts and lives of those here today. I pray for the gift of self-forgetfulness for myself. I pray that your word and your spirit would work powerfully here. May we understand your word and may it quicken us at the place of our soul that we long to see and know and follow you. I pray this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. And so I want to give you just a a, a little bit of an outline so you kind of know where we're going. In uh, John 5, 1 through 5, I'm going to talk about the content of those first five verses Um, And you're going to be surprised because there's going to be something in there that it's actually not in there that you didn't notice. The second part is uh, John 5, 6 through 9. And it is the command that Christ gives this man. And then there is a condition in the third part in John 5, 14. He lists a condition for him to be able to move forward. So those are the three aspects that we're going to look at in uh, in the intro that I want to give you kind of a context of what's happening here. This text, starting in chapter 5, is showing us the true nature and person of Christ. The title of the sermon is Being Misunderstood. When you think about being misunderstood, I, for one, often, you know, when you put in a position of leadership, you're going to be misunderstood. Just by nature of the fact that you're in leadership, you're going to be given more information, and you're going to have to make decisions about other people, and those people don't have the same information, and if that information is a decision kind of against them in some way or form, they're going to be frustrated. Well, Jesus, ultimately has the most information about the universe. And not only that, 
But when I'm misunderstood, I'm just a man. He is the God of the universe. There is the greatest gap of misunderstanding between who God is and what these people are making of him in our text. It's the greatest gap in the history of the world. You could say that Jesus was Mr. Misunderstood. No, no more misunderstanding than that. And y'all know it's hard. It's hard to be misunderstood. When you feel like all you're trying to do is help, and you may feel this as a parent, and your child looks at you and tells you, go away, I don't like you. I wish I had another parent. It just is a dagger in the heart to be misunderstood at that level. Well, this is happening to our Lord Jesus in especially chapters 5 through 7. He is being incredibly misunderstood. But before you see uh, how quickly the crowds dwindle, look with me at Luke 12, verse 1. If you want to just flip over there to Luke 12, verse 1, I want you to see before we see how misunderstood he is, how popular he was. And in Luke 12, verse 1, you can see it. It says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. (laughs) There are thousands of people, so much so that they're trampling one another. So at one point in the ministry of Jesus, there is just thousands of people following. And ultimately, that's what gets really interesting because later, in just a moment, you're going to see how quickly that changed. So chapters 5 through 7 begin to help us see that there were reservations about who Jesus was, but it turns quickly from reservation to outright rebellion and rejection. And we see that in, uh, in John 7, 52, just a couple of pages over. Look what happens in John 7, 52. They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So they're saying, You're from Galilee, Jesus. No prophet arises from Galilee. You know what the problem with that is? They don't even have the math right. That's not really where he's from. Yes, he grew up. He spent most of his life there. But he was born in Bethlehem like the prophet Malachi prophesied that he would be. So they don't even have the right birth location. You see where I'm going with the misunderstood? They're misunderstanding him from the outset. And because of that misunderstanding... They move forward, and they move forward all the way until Israel itself, as a nation, ultimately rejects their their Christ. And in Matthew 27, you don't have to turn there, you know it because you've read it. It says, uh, he's come before Pilate, and the people say, crucify him. His blood shall be on us and our children." So it's gone from thousands in Luke 12, 1, to now crucify him and let his blood be on us. At his death, most scholars believe that there was a handful 
of true disciples in Jerusalem, roughly 120. And then in Galilee, probably another 500. So if you do the math, there were about 620 people who believed Jesus was who he said he was. And honestly, I think a lot of them weren't really sure. So it went from thousands to the point they're trampling on each other, following, down to 620 once the reality of who this man, God, was. And so we see the progression from we want to follow you because we see the miracles, we're intrigued by the, and we're fascinated. And then also, don't forget, there was free food. And being in college ministry for years, I know how important free food is. It's like I'd have a Bible study one week with no food, and I'd have three people show up. The next week, I would give free pizzas, and I'd have 400 people. So Jesus has stopped the free food thing for now, and his numbers have dwindled dramatically. Now, let's look at John 5, 1 through 5. This is what it says. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, one of the reasons these people are where they are is it's close to the temple. And also, did you recognize it said there's five roofed colonnades? What would those roofs do if you couldn't get up and walk out of the sun that was beating down? You could lay under these roofed colonnades and get shade. Or if it began to rain... So this was a popular spot where these people would stay. Not only that, but there was this intrigue about the water. Somehow, maybe, this water could cure me from whatever the disease was that I had. But I want to make, this is my first point, the content of these first five verses. I want to make a few observations that I think you're going to find interesting. One Jesus intentionally sought out this man. Much like in chapter 4, Jesus deliberately went to the woman at the well. Jesus now goes to this pool. He doesn't, you know, Jesus isn't just random. He, he's thought this through. He leaves Sakaar, he goes to Jerusalem, and he goes to this particular man. Did you see what the text said? There were literally hundreds of people by this pool. He goes to one man. Jesus initiates to this one guy. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Why would Jesus go to that one guy? He had a reason. But the second observation I want to make is this. Unless you're reading a particular version of the Bible, I'm curious as what Pam was reading when she read. Was it a New King James, Pam? Okay. What you may find in your Bible, and I don't want it to trip you up, 
But for the most part, unless you're looking at a King James Bible, verse 4 is not there. So it reads verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5. If you look down in your footnotes, you probably will see where it has put verse 4 in there. Now, don't be scared. Your Bible is still inerrant and authoritative, I promise you. But I will explain why this is the case. With the King James Bible, they used some later manuscripts to translate this version. When they translated some of the newer Bibles, the ESV, the NIV 84, and some other Bibles, they went as far back to the most reliable manuscripts that we had and painstakingly compared those manuscripts and said, you know what? Somewhere along the way, the King James Version, some scribe felt that verse 7 begged, begged for an answer. When you look at verse 7, look at what it says there in John 5, verse 7. 5, verse 7 says this. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps in before me. So you see, it's like now... If you don't have verse 4, and verse 4 says an angel of the Lord came down and stirred the water so that the first person that got in got healed. Well, that's not correct in all of the original, most reliable manuscripts. Now, before you go too far down the road, I want you to know this. Theologians and scholars painstakingly Look at the most reliable manuscripts, and they have basically cleared up in 99.5% of every discrepancy there is in a translation. None of them are in any major, there's none, 100%, in any major doctrinal issue. It's in some scribe that gets a letter wrong, or some scribe that puts it just a little bit different than this manuscript. This is one of those places. It could be that verse 4 in the King James Version is the right translation. It could be. The fact is, nobody really knows. But verse 7 is looking, asking for some sort of explanation, and somebody along the way tried to give one. And so, don't let this disturb your faith in the Word of God. There are thousands of Greek manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts, and they arrive at an amazingly reliable translation. So we're okay. But verse 4, interestingly enough, not there. The third observation in that first point is the setting. The name of the pool is Bethesda in Aramaic. It means house of mercy. John tells us a great number of disabled people used to lie there, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, 
And these colonnades covered them and provided for them shade. Jesus didn't just happen to come up to this man. He sought him out. Here we see in this passage the compassion of Christ for a man lame for 38 years. Jesus went to this man, initiated a relationship. But here's the thing. Jesus says to this guy, do you want to be healed? It's an interesting question. I've been lame for 38 years, dude. My legs don't work. I can't get up and go anywhere. And you're asking me, do I want to be healed? You would think, that's a dumb question. But in the East, with this culture, in an Eastern lame beggar, he actually could make a pretty good living just by being crippled. And so Jesus comes to him and he says, do you really want to be healed? And what he's saying is, or do you really like the life that you have? And he says, I don't have anybody to pick me up and put me in the pool. He doesn't realize who it is that he's talking to. Here's the thing, though. What about you? You know, you're sitting there, and I remember before I was a Christian, going to a church service here and there, if I would have been asked point blank by the Lord, Clint, do you really want to be in a relationship with me? Do you really want to be healed? I think that I probably would have said, not as much as I want to party, or not as much as I want this. And so Jesus' question is a real question for us. Do you really want to know him? And his response is, nobody's there to put me in the pool. Obviously, he doesn't know. So the second point that I'm making is Christ's command to him. After he says, there's nobody to put me in the pool, Jesus tells him, what does he say? He says, take up your bed and go. Take up your bed and go. Look with me at uh, verses 8 through 13 in chapter 5. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said that to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in that place. Let me ask you this. Do you think for a minute that Jesus did not know it was the Sabbath? Do you think that the God of the universe, that kind of slipped his mind? So here's what Jesus could have said, if you think about it. Jesus could have said, get up, leave your, leave your bed there, it's the Sabbath, and walk. He could, have, he could have said that. He knew that. But no, this is what he said. Get up, take your bed, 
and walk. You know what that is? That's not the Jesus that's hanging in my grandmother's foyer with the halo around his head. That's the Lion of Judah ready to pick a fight. That's the Lion of Judah saying, I will do what I came to do. And it is the religious that will fight me. It is those that think they are morally superior superior and self-righteous that are going to fight me. But I won't back down. Oh, no. I came to save, to seek, and to save the lost and the hurting, and I'm here to fight for them. I will fight for their souls. And so Jesus picks a fight, and he knows he's picking a fight. He knows it. You see, he knew that the Jewish leaders had put extra biblical rules on the Sabbath, meaning man-made rules. And they had like 39 of them that aren't in the Scripture. And Jesus knew that by picking up that bed and walking, those Jewish people would say, he broke the Sabbath. And so, indeed, he has picked a fight. Look, look with me again at verse 16 through 18. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing things, these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working now, and I am working. Just push pause right there for just a second. My father is working now, and I am working. It's the Sabbath. We're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Whoop. So Jesus is working on the Sabbath. And the Father's working on the Sabbath. But we're not supposed to be working on the Sabbath, right? Think about it. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. How could God not be working on the Sabbath? He's got a universe to run. He's working. He's working. The sun's working. And right here, Jesus is saying, I'm working because I'm God. And I will do what I will do when I choose to do it because I'm God and you're not. Deal with it. And they don't like that. Look what they do. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus is claiming to be equal with God, and he's breaking the Sabbath, and he's not doing this like, oops, I forgot, sorry guys, I knew y'all had that rule, and I just messed it up, dang, I'm so stupid, no, 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 this was the beginning, here in John 5, where we're going to see the biggest misunderstanding in the history of mankind, and it was initiated by the Lion of Judah. Guy's not a wimp. He's a man's man. He's a fighter. He's a warrior. He's a soldier. And he's all of that for you. And he's all of that for me. Because my soul needed a savior. 
And it was going to take his death on a cross to bring that to happen. And he knew it. And that's why. My third point, Christ condition. This will answer my question. And my question that I had when I was studying that you may have had in sitting here is you got hundreds of lame invalids sitting there and Jesus goes up to only one. He had the power within him to just do this, guys. All of you. Bam! You're healed. And everybody would have just stood up and walked off. Healed. It's like, why didn't he do that? I don't get that. Why did he not? Look with me again at John 14 through 15. Afterward, so after he heals him and tells him to go, Jesus found him. Jesus goes and finds him in the temple. So it's a whole other whole location, and it's been a while. And Jesus says, and you know it's been a while because he says, See, you are well. I healed you. See that? See my power? See who I am? And then he says, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. So now he's getting the identity right. It's Jesus who healed him. But you've got a couple of other problems here. Like, that's a weird phrase. Sin no more. What, what is that about? Why is he saying it that way? Jesus wasn't in tempt, uh, when he went to him initially by the pool, Jesus' intention wasn't just to heal this man physically. Because we, we know in verse 14, Jesus goes and finds him. Here's the thing. I think when you truly come to the Lord, and when I come to the Lord, Jesus is working. He comes and he finds you. I don't believe you were smart enough. I don't believe you were good enough. I don't believe you were intelligent enough to go find him. Matter of fact, the scriptures say you wouldn't do that because sin Sin would keep you from finding him. Sin would keep you from seeing him. Jesus has to come and intentionally say, hey, bozo, talking to me, not you. If he said you, he'd be saving worse. I'm here, and I'm your Savior. You see, it wasn't about physical healing. It was about spiritual healing. And let me take it a step further. And this will be hard for some of you and probably hard for me one day. I believe with all of my heart that God will allow cancer. I believe that God will allow tumors. I believe that God will allow and even is now allowing emotional tragedy and pain in our lives. 
And so when he comes to the pool at Bethesda and all of these people are hurting, he knows in his sovereignty some of that pain is going to be what causes those people to find him. And if God just removes all the pain in your life and makes everything hunky-dory and you just feel great all the time, you know what I bet? You'd never look for the treasure that is Christ. It is in your suffering and in your pain that you look to an answer. We look to a hope that is beyond this world, that is better, that is greater, that is more. And so Jesus, when he came into the world, instead of just, waboom, everybody's healed, everybody's happy, yay, he leaves you with some pain. And he leaves you with maybe cancer. He heals some. But it is in those things that he's going to speak into your soul. And it is in those tragedies that you're going to hear his voice like with a megaphone. And so, could it be, could it be that the pain in your life is the greatest invitation to eternal life you will ever experience? I think maybe so. And you see what Jesus told this guy? Go and sin no more or something worse will happen. What could be worse than 38 years of being crippled? Probably only about one thing that I can think of. An eternity separated from everything that is good and right and true in a place called hell. And he's telling this man, go, repent, sin no more. Because you know what sin does? Ultimately, what sin does is it keeps us from seeing the majesty and the beauty and the greatness of God. It is when I am living in a sinful state that I begin to question, is the Bible really true? Is there really a God and I go down this path, and then it seems like in Psalm 73, when I come back into the presence of the Lord, I begin to get clarity again. When I confess my sin and get right in my soul with God, I begin to see Him again. So, on this passage, some theologians say, the most natural understanding of go and sin no more, and this can be tricky, so you got to follow me here, you've been sleeping, you might wake up for this point, um, is he's saying, or they're saying, the most natural understanding of this statement is that this man's illness was a result of his problem. Now, I'm not saying that sin equals you have a problem. Trust me, that's not what I'm saying. But it could be that in this particular case, this man's sin led to his problem. For example, if we do heinous things like get behind the wheel of a car when we're totally uh, under the influence of some drug or alcohol 
and we crash into another person and kill them, that sin led to something horrible. So that can happen. Not only that, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and every time we take the Lord's Supper, I fence the table with these words. For this reason, in 1 Corinthians 11.30, because of your sin, many of you are weak and sick and a number are dead because of your sin. Sin can lead to that. However, the opposite of that is the fact that in John 9, 2, and 3, Jesus was asked about a man that was blind. He said, who sinned, his father or, his, uh, or this man? And he said, it was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so what I'm saying is the explanation could be this guy's sin led to his problem, and he's saying, sin no more or something worse will happen. I tend to think he's saying, if you keep on in your sin, you'll perish in hell. That's what I think he's saying. That's my interpretation after studying the passage. So, I believe that deep shame, deep guilt, deep fear can lead to things like anxiety and depression These could be things like what's going on with this guy. Possibly, um, I want to read to you, um, ultimately what I believe this, what Jesus is telling this guy can be simplified. This is, uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones has written a couple of books. One of them is uh, the Jesus Bible. It's a wonderful Bible for kids. This is thoughts that will make your heart sing. And I thought as a simple way to explain what Jesus was saying to this man, I would read you this very short story. Um, It's just not even a full page. And it's called um, The Foolish Fish. It has a picture of a fish. I feel like I'm in elementary school showing you the book. What if a fish one day decided, I've had enough of being told what I can and can't do and only being allowed in water. So Jesus tells this man, go and sin no more. I want to be free. I'm going to find my fortune on land. And then jumped out of the water and onto the riverbank. How far do you think that foolish fish would get It would wriggle and flap its fins, but of course, fins don't work on land. It would lie there grasping for air, and pretty soon, it would die. How free is that fish on land? Not very. The fish is not built for land, and we are not built to be away from our Heavenly Father. The way that we get distance from our Heavenly Father is through sin. And Jesus is telling this man, go and sin no more. I wanted to go through with you in our Wednesday nights, we're reading a a book by Max Stiles. It's a book on evangelism. And I felt like 
he did an, an exceptionally good job of capturing in four phrases or four words the essence of the gospel. Sometimes people say, you know, they grow up in the church, they know the gospel, and then I ask them maybe, could you explain the gospel to me? And when I hear them say it, I go, wow, that wasn't even close, you know. And so I'm going to give you and walk you through his four points, and we're going to look at it on the screen. He has God, man, Christ, and response. And this is the closing piece of our time this morning. Under God, um, it says, God is our creator. He is a loving, holy, he is loving, holy, and just. One day, he will execute perfect justice against all sin. Number two, man. People are made in the image of God. We are beautiful, amazing creatures with dignity, worth, and value. But through our willful rebellion against God, we have turned from being his children to his enemies. Still, all people have the capacity to be in a restored, loving relationship with the living God. The third part of the gospel, Christ. Christ is the Son of God whose perfect life gave him the ability to become the perfect sacrifice. Through his death on the cross, he ransomed sinful people. Christ's death paid for all who come to him in faith. Christ's resurrection from the dead is the ultimate vindication of the truths of these claims. And then fourth and finally, our response. The response God requires from us is to acknowledge our sin, repent and believe in Christ. So we turn from sin, especially the sin of unbelief, and turn to God in faith with the understanding that we will follow him the rest of our days. I'm going to close with this. Shane and Shane, <clears throat> Peggy and I listen to them a lot. They have... Uh, the Psalms, and they sing through the Psalms. And they have this other song that is, uh, the lyrics of it, or are, are the title of it is You're Beautiful. And when I sing this one lyric, it just strikes a nerve with me down in my soul where I live. And the lyric, I'm going to read it to you twice. This is what it says. When we arrive at eternity's shore, where death is just a memory and tears are no more, we'll enter in as the wedding bells ring. Your bride will come together and we'll sing, you're beautiful. One more time. When we arrive at eternity's shore, where death is just a memory and tears are no more, We'll enter in as the wedding bell rings. Your bride will come together and we'll sing. You're beautiful. Let's pray. Father, eternity's shore for some of us could be today. For me, 
for others of us. But if we know you, when that day comes, death will be only a memory and tears will be no more. The wedding bell will ring and there will be a glorious feast. We will be with you once and for all. You are beautiful. You and you alone are good, God. We thank you. We pray in Christ.